You're listening to River Church Podcast. To learn more about River Church or to support us financially, please visit us online at rivercolumbia.com. We hope that you enjoy this week's message. All right, everybody, let's go to Matthew 5. Let's go to Matthew 5. So shocked, right? Planted there for a little bit, I told you. Um, all right, Matthew 5. Um, sweet. How's everybody doing? I don't have any like really, really good jokes yet. I know that one last week, you know, so many people were asking for it after. <laughs> Actually, nobody asked for it after. <laughs> it was funny, though, you know? Anyways, some of y'all are like, all right, please, I'm getting uncomfortable, move on. <laughs> no funny jokes this time yet. But Matthew 5, I want to do a little recap of things. Um, just to kind of, like, come back into this in the, in the right way, you know, the Sermon on the Mount at the end of the day, this is kind of what this is like called or uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is like known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of like a, a shorthand way of saying what it, what it was. But essentially these like teachings of Jesus is like uh, him declaring very clearly what it means for us to be the righteousness of God in Christ to live like it on earth, what it looks like both inwardly and outwardly. There's so many things happening as he's teaching this. He's declaring who we are. He's uh, diagnosing the problem of like our hearts are actually what's evil, not our behavior and our hearts need to be healed. He's also declaring uh, again, like the right way to live in holiness. So he's doing all of these things and it's important to like, uh, like notice something the, the best way we can get a, a proper understanding of the teachings of Jesus is obviously through the rest of the scriptures. And what I mean by that is Jesus comes into time. Um, it's a fun topic in and of itself. He enters into time, right? And uh, he, he starts to like teach and preach based on what is called the Hebrew Bible. And in the Hebrew Bible, there's all kinds of stories that's uh, you know, the story of the Israelites, essentially. And the story of the Israelites, one of the main parts that's important to get as we walk through and continue to walk through the Sermon on the Mount, one of the main parts uh, of, this, of this nation of Israel and their journey to get is when they got into the Promised Land, does anybody remember what Israel did wrongly? I mean, they did a lot of things wrong. But what was the, what was the main thing? I was like, as soon as I said that, I was like, well, that's a trick question because there was a thousand things, right? Um, just like you and me. But what was the thing that they asked for that they uh, were instructed not to ask for when they got into the promised land? What is it, Katie? A king. a king. So right. Do you remember why they asked for a king? Do you remember what their reasoning was? What was their reasoning? Katie's on it. Katie's on it. They wanted to be like everyone else. So Israel gets into the promised land. Their, the heart was, up until that time, that Yahweh was going to be their king. That they were given this heart. They were given this, these commands. The, the commands in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. We know them as the Ten Commandments. But they were an overview of how to love God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. They were how that looked. And then there were 619 like civil laws and how to live in... like congruency with the people around you and just kind of like be your own holy nation basically and so they were meant to live with Yahweh as their king 
And he was going to give them prophets and priests to help govern them and help continue to lead them in the way that they should go. And they were going to take this promised land or enter this promised land and they were going to just prosper. They were going to be fruitful. They were going to multiply. And they were going to be a shining light to all of the nations around them. According to Genesis 12, they were going to be a shining light, the promise that God made to Abraham, to the fathers, that I'm going to be a blessing to you, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. And the picture was that by living wholly unto the Lord and Yahweh being their king, that they would be such a shining light like a city on a hill that all of the nations around them would look at them and say, oh my gosh, that's how we're designed to be. And they would repent and turn back to Yahweh. And they would all, and then all of the earth, <laughs> this is God's rescue plan, right? Uh, all of the earth would come back under the lordship of Yahweh, which is the safest place to be. Where we were designed to be, submitted to him, living in union with him, in fellowship with him, enjoying the Eden blessing, that little Eden ideal of like walking with no shame, filling this world with beauty, prospering, all of those beautiful things were going to happen by result of Israel being who Israel was called to be. And then all of the nations, all of the people around them, seeing how Israel functioned without any earthly king, not trying to build their own kingdoms, but under the lordship of Yahweh, and they were going to be like, huh, that's different. We got wars and violence, and we can't keep people straight for two days over here in Babylon and Assyria and all these other surrounding areas. So that didn't happen. <laughs> Israel asked for a king, and because Yahweh is not, uh, because the father is essentially is not a, a control freak, and because he isn't going to force our hand, he honored their choice, didn't approve of it, honored their choice to have their own king. Then the rest of the Hebrew Bible is about how those kings were terrible. <laughs> you know, it's like gives this report, and as soon as you start seeing like, oh, this king's actually doing good, it's like, all right, then you just went downhill quick. You know what I mean? And then the rest of them are terrible. They're offering stuff to idols and all this nonsense, right? Because there was a problem. Humanity was in captive or in slavery to sin. And their heart, no matter how much they wanted to obey God, couldn't. And so they were constantly under the, the slavery of sin, the slavery of self, building their own kingdoms, looking out for their own selves. That led to violence, oppression, all kinds of craziness. And so then Israel gets sent into exile. And then Jesus shows up as the result of like many, many, many prophecies when Israel gets sent into exile after they just ruin their nation. It's divided in two. David brings it back together, but then it gets crazy again. They all get taken by Babylon. And so Jesus shows up on the back of prophecies to come and be the promised Messiah that all of the prophets started prophesying and they're like, hey, look, we don't need another king. We're not going to have another king. There's going to be a Messiah, an anointed one that comes and he deals with all of this. That's shorthand way of saying what all of the Isaiah, prophet, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of the minor prophets, they're saying in all of these beautiful, confronting, very uh, in, in engaging, but also uh, terrifying ways. They're like poetically prophesying about this Messiah to come. A couple prophecies, you know, that he's going to come from Bethlehem. Micah makes that prophecy. A couple of prophecies about how he was going to fulfill all of the law and the prophets, right? All of these prophets about he was going to be the king that we've desired all along, that we needed all along. And so Jesus shows up. He starts announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so when he comes, the summary of his message is not uh, only repent and go to heaven. It actually wasn't that at all. It was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
It's a summary of his message. You go read the Gospels, every single one of them. They describe it in different ways, depending on the way they like to write. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But the summary of his message was repent, turn. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand means available in our midst, right here, right now. Which was wildly offensive, you know, for a thousand reasons. Jesus also starts talking about how he's the son of God. And then he starts to prove that he's the son of God through the preaching of the word, through the teaching of the word, and through healing everyone. So right before the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew 4, it says that he went about preaching and teaching. He went about preaching in their synagogues. Preaching and teaching in their synagogues and healing everybody who had diseases. And so what's happening is that there's this uproar starting to happen of like, oh, could this be the one? Paul's right there. Everybody in Israel during that time is like waiting for the one. They just know that the Messiah is to come. They don't know who and when. They know it's of the seed of Abraham, son of David. What could that mean? All kinds of debate, all that kind of stuff. This Jesus of Nazareth shows up unexpectedly in ways that a lot of the Pharisees, you know, didn't think would would happen. And again, he starts preaching and teaching, healing the sick. And that is to testify that he's the son of God, the promised Messiah that would bring all of humanity back under the lordship of God. It would rescue everyone from slavery. It would address the real problem, which is not humans. The real problem is evil that's made its home in humans. Right? And so then we get to this like passage in Matthew 5, and he starts announcing. This is like if there was like a, a constitution uh, or a manifesto, Ma- Matthew 5 through 7 would be that. It is not that, but if there was, that's kind of like to get our mind thinking the right direction, what this is. He goes, he heals a bunch of people, and then he goes up on a mountain. I talked about this last week. <laughs> I just think this is interesting at the end of Matthew 4 to notice that he uh, goes up on a mountain, and a bunch of people go, and because they're so enthralled by him, and they've already seen so much, they go and walk up a mountain. And I know some of you guys are like, yeah, not a big deal. Some of you are like... I'm not trying to go up a mountain anytime soon, right? But I just think, like, just think about like the 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 passion, the sincerity in the in the hearts of the people that are following him. They're so curious, they're so amazed. Any cost, I just want to hear another thing he has to say. I would do as well. You know, we have it really easy, like way too easy to be honest. One of the things I pray for all the time is that the Lord would just like humble me that I would choose humility one of the things I like desire the most is that I would choose the humility in the area of not losing sight of the fact that I have it debatedly as easy as any generation has ever had it to follow Jesus so you guys like no there's a lot of bad stuff in the world it's like okay well if you turn your phone off for five minutes you'll be fine like that's if that's what's hard is the fact that you got somebody on Instagram saying that Jesus isn't real or something it's like that's not hard that's not what it, that's not what hard is hard is if i followed this man i might die <laughs> hard is not well you know all my classmates they don't believe in Jesus and they go out all the time that's not hard that's just different hard is if i really go to this gathering and the government knows about it we all might die or go to prison that's hard You know, (laughs) and something that I pray about all the time 
And I say I pray, but in, in sincerity, it's probably just the Holy Spirit bringing up in my heart. Like, God, please don't let me take it for granted that this morning I showered. <laughs> I just like had a sweet little breakfast with my family. I read the word earlier in the morning. And I like excitedly got in the car to come and gather with some people who say Jesus is Lord with zero bit of fear in my heart. Just think about the saints, the people who had to climb mountains just to hear another thing he had to say. Well, I got kids, you know, worship's hard because, you know, to get there on time is hard. I got a kid. It's like, okay, well, you know, just put them on your hip and figure it out. Because there were people well before us who had to carry their kids up mountains to hear just a word from the Lord. Now we get unhindered access to his presence (laughs) at any moment. I mean, this is wild. And so I just, I, it's so good to let the entitlement, if there is any creeping in, to not try to fight it, but just choose humility instead and be like, my gosh, I probably have it as easy as any Christian has ever had it. You know? There's, in the world right now, in the world at this very moment, there are people where that's a reality for. You know, the, in China, in Iraq, in Iran. I mean, there are people, in order for them to just read the word that we complain about not reading enough <laughs> sometimes, you know, in order just to get their hands on it, they're risking their life. Do you, like, do you understand how precious it is what you've been given? Man, that should be so, it is so convicting every time I think about it. So a bunch of people climb a mountain. And they're hearing what it looks like to live different than the world around them. And so just like keep in mind that as we read through this and as we walk through this and as we teach through this and as we make points about it and as the Spirit opens our eyes to things, that in essence, Jesus is very intentionally (laughs) saying, here's who we are, here's how we live. And it's so different. And so if you read something and it says, blessed are the persecuted, how does that make sense? It's not supposed to. It's just different. What this requires a lot of times too, and I you know, think this is important for just our family, you know, our, what the Lord's doing amongst us is, and I mentioned this last week, so many of you, almost all of you have grown up in some area of, uh, under some area of influence of Christianity, which in one sense is amazing. And in another sense, you sometimes become numb to how different we are called to be than everything around us. Uh, As Kendall was saying earlier, it's kind of convicting to not be in touch sometimes with the uh, outside world. People who, who don't live like you. And I think one of the things that is meant to be something we carry so well and humbly, but resolutely and unapologetically is the way that I am to live is not to look like everyone around me. You're like, well, that sounds kind of negative. What about all these people? They're good people. It's like, I don't, we're not talking about those people. I'm talking about what the words of my Lord, my Savior, the one that I say owns me and leads me, what his words are. And yes, he owns me. That's what Lord means. If you don't think he owns you, then he's not Lord of your life. His words are the most precious, amazing, safe, blessing filled whether or not i think they benefited me or not doesn't even matter you know sometimes i get caught in this little trap of thinking well how does that benefit me and the lord's like well we're not talking about that right now 
Like, what do you mean? Doesn't he want good for us? Yeah, exactly. But I'm not called to lead me. And so I don't need to be constantly calculating how being the persecuted and hated blesses me. It might not. It might just stink. Ever thought about that? That following Jesus isn't about being just happy all the time? Following Jesus isn't about what I want following Jesus to be about. It's about what he says it is. You know, and so I just, I get, like, I, I, something that's important is that we, like, kind of repent from, turn from traditions, things that you've learned growing up about following the Lord, not because anybody did something wrong. Hear it very clearly. Do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about start hating everybody who taught you wrong. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not saying, like, think about your old Baptist church and be like, ah, they just didn't get it. That's not what I'm saying right now. I'm saying that your heart, like, hears afresh the words of your Lord, your Savior to you. And so when he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, you don't pridefully assume, well, I know what that means. I've seen it all my life. You say, well, do you? Because blessed are the merciful means blessed are those ones who help at any time, in any way, however it's needed. And when's the last time you helped someone? And if there hasn't been someone you helped, you don't know those words. You have heard those words, but if the last two weeks of your life was full of you trying to figure out how you're going to live your life, you don't yet know his words. And that's okay. We're here to learn. We're here to be discipled. We're not here because we got it all figured out, you know, and we won't ever get there. As soon as we think we have it all figured out, the Lord's like, you don't know as you ought to know. We're here to be a bunch of kids, sons and daughters, following this man, Jesus, the one who saved our soul, and we just leave, we're following him. And so when he says, blessed are the merciful, it's like, ha, oh, let me try to live that out, Lord. James talks about this in James 1, 22 through 25. We'll read it a little bit later. He talks about, don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. Don't be like a foolish person who looks in the mirror and then goes away unchanged. That's not the blessed one. And so we get to this like sermon on, on the mount, so to speak, this time where Jesus is just announcing some radical, scandalous, wild, crazy things. Like unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And a bunch of people, again, that's when he said that, you know, I can, I can almost guarantee that when he says that to thousands of people on a hillside, none of them, almost none of them were like, praise God. That's so encouraging. They were like, oh, my gosh. None of us, not, not a single one of us are going to heaven. We, I mean, this is terrible. Unless our righteousness exceeds the righteous, like this is awful. So Jesus wasn't on a hillside trying to get people excited, you know? Let's just imagine, he's like, hey, blessed are you and you're hated for my name's sake. They're like, I don't even really know who you are. And I don't, I don't know if I want to even be hated. I don't like being hated. I don't like when my wife thinks something ill of me. Well, I don't let alone everybody around me hating me. You know, so it, like there were certainly some beautiful parts to this, but there, this was like so confronting that it caused them to reorient their whole entire life, which is what the gospel of the kingdom of heaven does. Again, just keep in mind the nation of Israel that wanted, once they get into the promised land, they wanted a king of their own, and the heart of it was to be like the nations around them. <laughs> you know, to be honest, we could probably stop right there and just, like, get into a time of, like, letting you and I and all of us in our hearts repent from trying to just 
live in the fear of man and the spirit of the world, a thousand different ways you could call it. I mean, you could, but I, I encourage you to take that into your time with the Lord and really weigh that in your spirit. Like, where, where is my heart? Do I really want to be like some kind of picture of life that has been modeled for me? Or am I really after being conformed to the image of Jesus? Just so you know, what we're doing is not trying to get you set up on a good retirement plan where you have a cool house. You know, it's just like, I mean, blessings, sure, sure, yeah, that's great, they'll come. Seek first the kingdom of God, it'll add all those things to your life. But what we're doing right now, as you hear the sound of my voice, is we are proclaiming the truth of Jesus, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And that might really bless some of us materially, and it might not. But I need you to put aside all of the preconceived notions of following Jesus every season. I do this as well. <laughs> I feel like it's just like every season, I'm like, all right, I want to learn afresh. How do I follow you, Lord? But it's so important that we don't get like, uh, we don't get, so much of us have like a lot of different voices and, um, you know, I talked about this generation, it's like the easiest to follow Jesus, I really believe that. I don't say that to anybody's shame, I just really do think that is, and that's exciting, because that means we can, you know? It's like, hallelujah, instead of maybe feeling like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's kind of hard, Greg. It's like, well, maybe just be excited that you can follow Jesus, how about that? Um, but like the, the amount of noise, one of the things that does compete is the amount of noise in our life. What is also true of this generation is there has never been as much noise as there is in this generation. You know, never as much like things competing for attention and all that kind of stuff. And what we are to do is not to fight the ground warfare of how many things we don't need to give our attention to. What we are to do is to resolutely and single-mindedly give all of our attention to him. And in giving all of our attention to him, so many other things. The, the simplest metaphor for this is when I, like in my heart, decided that Baker was the one, didn't matter what any other woman was doing, some of those women around me were good for me or would have been good for me or some of them would have been a negative influence. So it's not a matter of whether or not those women were good or bad or something like that. It was just that I had chosen one and my heart was set on her. And so as a result of that, there was a lot of things I just didn't do. A lot of time I didn't spend with so-and-so or a lot of whatever it was. Does that it's a very simple explanation. So we don't get caught up. You know, when I started dating Baker, I didn't go home and think, well, let me try to decide what girl, other girls are good for me and not good for me. It was, that would be weird. But a lot of us, when we try to follow Jesus, we look at our life first and we try to figure out what is good and what is bad. And that's not the point. Yeah. The point is choose him. Knowing that all of those things will no longer look the same. It's not a point. The point isn't holding on to both. You know, we would call that infidelity. Right? wicked not good okay the point is choosing him in every season in every life single-minded and at some point in matthew 6 we'll get to that um but we're not trying to be like the nations around us we learn from israel right we're trying to be the nation which is exactly what it is of the kingdom of heaven um, the church, the ecclesia, is meant to be one that serves under the government of the one that will never end. Yeah. Isaiah 9 prophesied that of his government there will be no end. Not allegorical. <laughs> Real. He is king. 
he is sovereign. And so my allegiance is unto him. This isn't a, you know, sermon on political ethics and the kingdom of heaven. One day we'll get there for sure because we need to learn about that, no doubt. Uh, but that's not today. But it is important to know that we're following the leader, Jesus. Hopefully that's clear by the first 20 minutes of me talking. Eight blessings that he gives us. I just want to read this again, a summary of our identity according to Matthew 3 through 10 or Matthew 5, 3 through 10. We're a people empty before him, grieved and moved in our guts with compassion, satisfied by his presence alone, longing for more of him, ready to help anyone, anywhere, at any time and in any way, Resolutely single-minded in serving him alone, making peace on earth while being harassed, ridiculed, and slandered against. When it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that means we're a people empty before him. When it says, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, that means we're grieved and moved in our guts with compassion. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, that means we're satisfied in his presence and by his presence alone. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that means we're always longing for more of him. Satisfied, yet longing. Paul writes a little bit about that. Verse 6, or verse 7 talks about how we're the merciful. And we mentioned this a few weeks back, but the word merciful that Jesus uses, I think it's translated there, is not like feelings and emotions. It only means those who are moved into action for those in need. Only. It was not a, like, there's a different word for heartfelt grief and compassion. So we're people who are ready to help anyone, anywhere, at any time, in any way. When he says, blessed are the pure in heart, in verse 8, it means that we are single-minded in serving him alone. When he talks about blessed are the peacemakers, it means we literally make peace on earth. Paul talks about this in a really beautiful way, in a really uh, confronting way. In 1 Corinthians, some people were going to the law to settle disputes between each other, like a believer in the church and a believer in the church, and they were going to law because they wanted to sue a brother. A brother. A brother. Uh, I was in the middle of wanting to say brethren and realize I don't have to speak in NKJV. (laughs) Maybe I'll just start preaching in old English. That'd be fun. I could never do that. That would be really hard. Um, but two believers, like, they had, like, some kind of dispute or whatever. And he's like, what are y'all doing going to judges who are unbelievers and suing one another? Do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world? It's like, what? You can imagine they're reading that letter and it gets to chapter 6 and, you know, they don't have the... They, so somebody was just standing up. They say, hey, we got a letter from Paul. And he's got some things to say. And none of them are really that exciting. They're really confronting. And so he just got done rebuking them for sexual, sexual immorality and the fact that they weren't taking that seriously and they thought it wasn't a big deal. And he's like, you guys, what are you doing? You can't do that. This is a big deal. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, you're suing each other? What? Do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world? Why are you going to court in front of an unbeliever? You guys are like, he really said that? Why am I saying that? Because we're the ones that make peace on earth, not a Republican or a Democratic party. Not a nation somewhere far, far away. We are. You're like, that sounds pretty, but, you know, in reality, Greg, are we really? Yes. And you thinking you're not is exactly why other people think that they do. And exactly why there is no peace on earth. 
Isn't this fun? You and I have value. Extreme value, but the highest value. The saint of the most high. The word saint is the holy one. Hagios. And so early Christians, they were described, they would address one another as saints of the most high. There could be, if Jesus is Lord, if he's not Lord in your mind and your heart, then certainly a saint is just a little weird religious term. It means nothing to you. But if Jesus is Lord, there could not possibly be a higher honor, no organization, no success, not even motherhood or fatherhood or being a wife or a husband. There could be no higher honor than being a saint. Couldn't be if he's Lord. We are the ones who make peace on earth. And by oh my, we do need the help of the Holy Spirit for it. He goes on to tell us how we make peace on earth, though. Verse uh, 10, you know, and he talks about blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. We do all of these things while being harassed, ridiculed, slandered against. You're like, oh, I'm not really ever ridiculed or harassed for following Jesus. And it's like, well, I would uh, really challenge whether or not you're following Jesus. You're like, you can't really do that, Greg. You know, it's between me and the Lord. It's like, that is nowhere in your Bible. The Word decides whether or not you and I are following the Lord. And it's a very, like, if no one notices that I'm following Jesus, if my mom doesn't look at my life and be like, huh, something's different, and I don't like that. Well, I'm sorry, he's Lord. And it doesn't lead to insensitivity, but I just, I, I would encourage you to consider You know, it's not a foolproof thing. It's not that we go out, we preached about this and taught about this a couple weeks ago. It's not that you go out looking to be persecuted. But the reality is, is because you have your reward in him, the reality is if we're looking and living different like him, not just some random ideal of different. I'm not talking about like your fashion is different. Wow, you're so cool. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the different of the image of Jesus. The kind of different that says, you know what, me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord, so we're there every Sunday. And that has caused people in my family to not like that very much. Because it's something as simple as that. Do you see what I'm saying? It means that I'm going to follow his ways of life above all else. And that's going to meet friction. He goes on to, it's a good recap, huh? It's a little, little, little longer than I expected, but it's okay. He goes on to talk about how we're the salt and the light of the earth. And I just want to remind you what salt is. You're like, I know what salt is. I put it in food all the time. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's not what Jesus was talking about, right? Salt for us, when he's saying you're the salt of the earth, he's saying that you and I are those that are valuable. We purify the earth and we preserve it for the Lord. Salt in that day did those things. Like, think about that. You, he doesn't say, oh, and guess what? I am the salt of the earth. He's looking at a crowd and he's like, you, and the word you there, I know you're like, what could you possibly mean? It's like, well, I didn't think it meant anything either besides you. But that word you is like a military declaration, an intense declaration. It's like a call to action. It's not just the word that we have of you, right? And so he's saying you are the salt of the earth. So again, we didn't even get to righteousness yet. And these people are like... And I'm just trying to figure out how to get up a mountain with my kid and listen to what you got to say. And you're calling me the salt of the earth? It's overwhelming. Just a free little side note here. If you're looking for value anywhere outside of him, just won't find it. But don't think finding value (laughs) means fuzzy good feelings all the time. 
It's like some of us ask for value. We like want to know we're valuable, you know? And like you are. He literally sent his son to die for you, to show you that you are loved. And then as we walk in that belief, it's like, okay, you're valuable. You're the salt of the earth. You're like, hmm, I'm still kind of trying to, I'm in a season of being in seasons and more seasons and figuring out that season. And it's like, what are we even talking about anymore? Like, I'm in a season of raising my kids and doing a lot of things at home. And I'm in a season of like this. It's like Jesus is like, I don't know what your seasons you're talking about. I know you're the salt of the earth. And that's so good for my soul because I can live in freedom. I said this last week, and I just wanted to keep repeating it. Probably the best thing, the best thing that I unintentionally did, that the Holy Spirit has led me in over the past couple of years and since following Jesus, was just not stop serving him. Just do something. It's like, man, there were seasons in my life where my heart was all out of order, no doubt. But guess what was still good for my life? serving him and so when I would go to Bojangles at seven in the morning with a bunch of kids from Columbia High not know what the heck I was doing my heart was in all kinds of weird places and I but I knew that Jesus was Lord and I was to serve him it was so good for me what wouldn't have been good for me was like you know what I'm gonna go on a personal retreat for three years and figure out what season I'm in and then after that the next season and the season and the season and the season no I needed to just continue to serve the Lord and he was gonna work all those things out because he leads me not me you're like, that sounds kind of dangerous. Not at all. What's dangerous is me going into isolation and thinking that I'm the leader of my life. Him telling me I'm the salt of the earth was not ever dependent on my feelings. You guys are like, gosh, this is a little intense. This is exactly, this is the kingdom of heaven. And it's so amazing that it's intense and wild and light at the same time. Don't know how that works, but it works. Purifying the earth is a tall order. Preserving it for the Lord, man, that's so good for my heart that I know that the Lord loves this earth. He doesn't want it to just combust and start all over again. If he wanted that to happen, he would have done that in the time of Noah. He preserves it because he loves it, and he's coming back for his bride. And when he comes back for his bride, he wants to live with her in perfect union. On earth, this earth, this one, globe. Okay. As the light were those who are holy and blameless. I said this last week and I just again want to reiterate. Being the light of the world, I know for a fact this needs to be like, uh, like just turned from this misunderstanding of the light in the world. When Jesus is saying you're the light of the world, he's fulfilling the prophecies about Abraham where God told Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky. That means you're going to be, I'm going to make your descendants the holy ones in the earth. Okay, so when he's saying you're the light of the world, he's saying you are the holy ones in the earth. Paul picks this language up in Philippians 2. He says, look, we're light bearers. We were once darkness. He says this in Ephesians. We were once darkness. He just says we were darkness. Not that we were under. He's like, you once were darkness. Now you are light. It's pretty awesome, right? Paul says the way that we live in as the light is to just not complain. It's kind of like, you're like, oh, that's kind of a letdown. I was expecting something bigger. You know, it's like, well, if you don't complain, I promise you, you'll look a lot different than everybody around you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's convicting for me every time I think about it. It's like, man. But when we're talking about light, we're not talking about you having influence. <laughs> it's not like, 
wow, you're the really talented quarterback at your high school. You're the light of the world. It's like, no, that's not what light of the world means. It doesn't matter how many ways you want to twist it. Light of the world means you're supposed to look so different than the world that you're a city on a hill. Remember, Israel was meant to be a literal nation that was shining so that all of the nations, the, the, when he's talking about you're meant to be the light of the world, a city on a hill, your light cannot be hidden. The nations will look at you. The people will look at you and they'll see your good works. They'll see your good works. They will see your good works. And they'll glorify the Father in heaven. And so we're meant to be this people who is holy before him and living just like him. Sounds really good, right? But we know that we cannot live just like him in our own strength. And that goes without saying, but it's important to clarify. That when we get here to salt and light, we're starting to be like, oh, that's a lot of, res- I, like, I'm here for that. You start to kind of get some resolve, some excitement. But the reality is Jesus follows that right back up. And he was like, yep, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. And what that's meant to do is to help us understand that he didn't come to abolish that, but to fulfill it and to give us a new righteousness. One that our heart could never attain. Romans 10 talks about it in this way, that the Pharisees, Although they had a zeal for God, a passion for God, they were trying to establish their own righteousness and they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and they did not submit to the righteousness of God. And so we can stop trying to make ourselves righteous. This is what you heard when you heard the gospel of atonement and you were baptized in water and raised in newness of life. How many of you were baptized in water, under the water, not sprinkled? If you were sprinkled, you were not baptized. Raise your hand high. Come on now. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, I always am like, I feel, you know, whatever for the person that might not be, but it's, I don't feel any kind of way because I'm like, let's go, Jesus is Lord, let's, let's, let's confess him as Lord, you know, here's the invitation, be baptized. But when you were baptized in water, when you were lowered under the water, old life gone, that old life, like he says in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, what comes from the inside is evil. Let's actually go there, go, there, go to Mark 7 with me. Mark 7. Mark 7. We're just, going to read, we're just going to read one verse, Mark 7, 21. The Pharisees are talking about, like, why, why, don't you, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Why don't they keep all these laws and customs? And he's like, oh, 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 that's not what makes you evil, not keeping those. And they're like, huh, interesting. And then he just goes straight for the, like, I mean, what could be considered the throat, but I know that sounds really too violent for some people. Okay, verse 21. He says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So, when we're here in Matthew 5 and he's talking about the righteousness of God and then he goes on to describe what that looks like, it's important that we understand and we keep in mind he is both describing who we ought to be and who we have no shot at being without him. Swinging to either extreme is like, oh, that's a good idea, Jesus could never be that. But that sounds awesome. That's not what's supposed to happen here. Swinging to the other extreme of like you know yeah i could do that on my own not what's supposed to happen here (laughs) 
What's supposed to happen here is we're supposed to hear his words and it's supposed to conjure up conviction in us. And so let's read Mark, or Matthew uh, 5.21. This is getting a little too deep into some things if we go farther. But like Jesus doesn't operate in a, like this or that mentality. This or that mentality, right or left mentality, a binary mentality in that sense. Uh, let me re- use, that word's used a lot today, and I'm not trying to use it in that way. Um, a, a, a dual understanding of things, either this or that. That's not how Jesus operated. He operated that there are two seemingly, he operated in paradoxes, two seemingly opposite things that function at the same time, like grace and truth. God's free favor and the reality of truth. Both of those things operating at the same time, seemingly paradoxes. If you read the scriptures, you'll see. If you read Galatians and you read James, you should go do that sometime this week. Go read Galatians, take a break, go read James. You'll be like, huh. These dudes, uh, something happened, some big mistake happened here. They shouldn't, one or the other should be in here. Because one talks about, I've got my grace and my faith, no works. And that's how I'm saved, and that's it. Paul's like repeating himself. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. You're saved by grace through faith over and over again. And then James is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only through works. And you're like, he literally, if you take James, a passage, there's a verse. I'll just, you know, we can go have fun with this another time together. But like, there's literally a verse that is like almost exactly opposite. How could that be? That could be because they're two seemingly opposite. I've got some of us like really confused and that's okay. But that they're two seemingly opposite things. That one creates the other. So when I receive my righteousness by faith and only by faith and I submit to the righteousness of God and it enters me, truly enters me, that makes its way out of me and it works itself out of me. If I start with the works, I will not attain to the righteousness. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Although they had a zeal for God, they were trying to establish their own righteousness. But if we go to, if we, you know, aren't sober minded and we're swinging here, you, you know, this Romans talks about, he's like, I'd. I'm not talking about grace so that you can just continue sinning. That's absolutely not what we're talking about. But people were so hearing the message of grace so freely that they were like, oh, you know, God shows me grace for my sin. That glorifies God. So I guess I should keep on sinning and I should sin more because that gives God more glory because he shows me more grace. And Paul's like, oh, my God, no. He literally, you know, he's like, certainly not, right? You guys tracking with me? Right, And if you're honest, you have heard the gospel of salvation that way before, where it's like God's grace for my failures, God's mercy for my failures, God's free gift over my failures. And so, you know, if I mess up every once in a while, the problem with that is that we're totally missing the reality that when I was baptized, I died. (laughs) It's no longer I who live, but he who lives within me. What does that mean? It means that... Literally, he imputed righteousness to me. And then I use it. How odd would it be if I had access to Sophie's bank account, I put $2 million in it, and she just talked about how she had it but never used it? You'd be like, uh, can I have it? You know? 
That's, but that's what a lot of people do with their righteousness when they misunderstand grace is they are given righteousness freely and then they do not use it. How do you use it? Well, right here. We don't let murder live in our heart anymore. It's amazing. All right, let's read this. Matthew 21 or Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. So he quotes the sixth command, you know. Remember he said, I did not come to abolish those commandments. I came to fulfill them. He quotes the sixth commandment. We used to have growing up the commandments on like a little, I don't know where y'all had them in your house. Maybe you didn't, better for it probably. But we had them in our house for some reason. We didn't go to church or anything, but we had the Ten Commandments on the side of the refrigerator. Just, you know, I was, at least it was there, you know what I'm saying? It was a side of there. And I remember being like, oh, what are those? Can't do that. That's stupid, you know, and like, Sixth commandment is, you shall not murder. So Exodus 20, it's where that's given. It's reviewed again in Deuteronomy 5. Jesus said, hey, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. (laughs) So he's like, yeah, you know, obviously you're a murderer if you physically murder somebody, but not just that. If you have anger in your heart, you're a murderer. Anybody ever been angry towards someone? Come on. You can put your hand up. It's like, I'm duh. Right? Anybody been angry this week? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that means you're an idiot. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that means you're an idiot shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool, that means you are really dumb, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, again, I mean, just think, I just, think about these people on the hill. They're just like, okay, my righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, and uh, I'm in danger of hellfire? If you call somebody stupid, y'all ever been driving down the road and be like, what an idiot. I know you haven't ever done that, but I've done that many times, you know? It's like, why are they driving like that in that lane? How dare they? They're stupid, you know? I, I made this joke before, but there's been times when I'm like, the Lord's seriously convicted me of this. I'm like driving down the road, and it's like, why is it 35 miles per hour or 30 miles per hour down Divine Street? That's stupid. It should be 35 miles per hour. And the Lord's like, you know what? Some sweet old woman named Betty probably made that law in the town council meeting. I don't even know if that's how it happened, but that's where my mind went. That's where the conviction went. And he was like, so how about you just drive the speed limit instead of just being mad about it? Well, that means I got to go five miles. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) So we're all in danger of hellfire. This is exciting, you know? Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Uh, The equivalent, you know, we don't have altars uh, because we don't have the sacrificial system anymore. But the equivalent of that today would be if you come on in here and we're worshiping and the altar of your heart is being put before the Lord and you're singing to him. And you're like, huh, I remember that I, you know, really, really, really have a problem with so-and-so right now. The literal instruction is leave not figurative, is just, it is not, how about you just sit there in that seat and just kind of like pray about that a little bit. 
well, let me process that a little bit. To process that some more. He's like, no. Leave. <laughs> Go talk to them. The equivalent, you know, say like, I don't know. Best friend that, you know, this is such a hypothetical scenario, so just don't make fun of it or whatever. Just roll with me for a second. Best friend said you looked ugly in that dress or something like that last night at dinner, and they don't come here. That's such a silly example, but whatever. That's the first thing I can't call things. It's ridiculous. Sorry, man. I'll come to you for examples next time. Um, you come in here, and you got something against her. Like, How dare she? I tried really hard to find that dress. And you're like in here, and you're like starting to worship the Lord, and then you're like, God, I really need to talk to you about this bitterness. And he's like, I don't know what we're talking about. I've already told you what to do about that. Like, no, I can't. Like, the Father receives me. He's, like, only who I want him to be. Every time I'm mad, he just says, okay, they're there. No, he says, you're bitter? Huh, let's not worship. Let's go call her. You go outside, you say, hey, Sue. Any of y'all got a best friend named Sue? Just making sure I'm not being prophetic right now. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, Sue, you know, you said this last night, and it hurt my feelings. I forgive you. You're like, okay, come on, there's more serious matters in the world. No. You're like, well, that doesn't sound like super spiritual and exciting. It's like, well, yeah. It's about as spiritual as it gets right there. You coming in here, like, processing bitterness and crying about it and singing about it. What? That doesn't even make any sense. He says, hey, leave your gift at the altar. Go and talk to him. I was laughing in my head. I was like, I wonder how many people are going to like get up and go right now and just be like, well, I guess I got to leave. You know, it could be good for it. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Oh, also, if you've got somebody that has something against you while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, meaning before it even gets to the courts, like if there's an issue that you guys are debating about, you just go ahead and make peace. You're like, well, what if they really wronged me? No. Go ahead and make peace. I was like, well, then I'm going to be taken advantage of. I was like, well, it sounds a lot like Jesus. You're like, wait a second. Come on. We've got to have some, like, moral law here. I'm like, well, you can invent whatever you want to invent. I want to be like Jesus. And so if somebody wrongs me, I told this story. It's something super simple, okay? I'm going to keep telling it because it's just the latest one I got. When I get a new one, I'll give it to you, okay? But old dude backing out of the driveway cracked my taillight open. It's like... He's all, he's thinking I'm going to come out just roasting him. Like, how dare you hit my beautiful Tacoma, you know? Stay the art Tacoma. This thing's amazing, right? And I just come out, and I'm like, he's like freaking out. I'm like, dude, it's not a big deal. He's like, no, seriously, man, I'll pay for it. I promise, I promise. I just don't tell my boss. I'm like, don't call insurance. I just, I just don't want to deal with all that. I was like, dude, I literally just told you like six times. It's good. Right? And that's like not really the best example of like an adversary, but you get what I'm saying. I'm the one in that situation to make peace, not my insurance agent. To be honest, I was like, this thing could cost, I don't know how much, I have no idea, because things end up costing a million dollars, and you start like, I don't know, it's like whatever. But like, I'm just like, I'm going to pay for it, man. If I can't pay for it, I'm going to just have a broken taillight. Just relax, go about your day, you know? Think about how much heaven would flood the earth if we did that. Like, well, that would cost a lot <laughs> inside. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Is there a way to like legislate that in every situation? No, not really. But there is a Holy Spirit that will lead me right into those moments. Literally, this is what I thought of when I'm walking out of my house. The Holy Spirit brings to my mind, you're the peacemaker. It's like, all right, make peace. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Let your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you'd be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. This is uh, also more specifically what he was talking about is literal money. If you owe money, don't come in here and start like, you know, don't go to the sacrifice, sacrifice your stuff, acting like there's no money you owe people. Go and pay your debts. You're like, no, it can't be that practical. It's like, no, it quite literally is that practical. You know what the Lord's going to do in our life? I hate to say it. I, I hesitate to even say it's the Lord's going to do it. We are going to be obedient to getting out of financial debt. I'm not meant to borrow. You guys are like, well, you know, today's day and age, you've got to take out a car loan. It's like, well, I'm called to be a nation that's no, nothing like everybody else. And so I don't care how cool or how accustomed taking car loans out I did it before, all that kind of stuff, but we're going to pay off Tacoma. We're going to pay off the Volvo. We're going to pay off the house. We're going to pay off the student loan debt, not because Joe Biden signed something, but because we're called to do that. You know, you guys are like, is he really talking about that? Yes. I'm serious. I know this, is a, this doesn't make for like, oh, man, Sunday morning was awesome. I got like revelation about this and revelation about that. It's like, no, we're just going to get out of debt. It's like you owe who, what? They gave you money? You're the head, not the tail. Why are they giving you money? It's like, well, you know, I had to do this. A gift is one thing. I mean, praise God. People give us gifts and you gifts. That's amazing. A gift is one thing. Borrowing from people that you're meant to be an example to. And I, dude, trust me, I've been in the financial university things, the like stuff about like all the different ways to talk about it. I just, can it, can it just be as simple as Jesus saying, hey, don't owe anybody anything. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna partner with the abilities that God's given us. I don't, I, like, I, there's part of me that just, again, hesitates to even, there's all this like, spiritual language that starts to get created. It's like, we're going to let the Lord take us out of debt. It's like, what? Just do it. You know? It's like, I don't know how, but we got people like Wesley and Matthew who are smarter than all of our brains combined, and they can help us figure out different ways to do this. And we got people who have gotten out of debt in our family who have actually done that. And so we could be like, hey, help me. Let me budget. He's like, oh, I don't like that budget you helped me make. And I was like, well, that's the point. That's why you're talking about being in debt, and they're not in debt. Right? And so when Wesley sits down, he's like, well, you know, this, that, and the other. And he's like, well, I just don't like that, Wes. And he's like, well... You know, and it's like, we got to let people, what, the, what does that do to your heart? I, do, I don't want you to just see the uh, action, although the action, what that does to my heart is it actually proves whether or not I believe that I am submitted to the Lord. It actually proves whether or not I trust the Lord. It actually proves whether or not I let him lead me or I'm leading me. It's so good for my heart to trust people. It's so good for my heart to be convicted. It's so good for my heart to realize, you know what, didn't spend money well. You know, and this is just, like, again, there's, like, money sides to this. There's emotional sides to it. There's all this, like, being in debt. Man, the Lord's going to free us of it, has freed us of it. We're going to walk in it. 
Okay, I, don't, I do want to pause for a second, and I want to go to, you guys good so far, okay? Uh, everybody good? Nice. It's fun. It really is. I like read that passage so many times in 21 through 26, and I'm like, all right, what's the hidden meaning, Jesus? And he's like, just, you know, just what's up, man? Don't get out of debt or don't don't be in debt. Get out of it. You know, it's like he definitely didn't say don't get out of debt. <laughs> you know, and I think there is like, again, the spiritual reality is, is my heart was dead. Could not be the righteousness of God. I was so deceived by sin that I could not obey God and did not know that I was disobeying God. But when I confessed him as Lord back in 2011 and was baptized in water, I was given a new nature. According to the word, not according to my understanding in 2011. I was given a new nature. What is that new nature? It's his nature in me. It's righteousness imputed to me. You remember the example earlier that I talked about? If I put $2 million in Sophie's bank account and she just stared at it the rest of her, her life, you'd be like, what? The righteousness of God surpasses $2 million, obviously. It gets imputed. It gets transferred into our account. Why? So that we would literally use it. So that it would come out of us. And that is how we dwell with God on earth. That is heaven on earth. Think about a bunch of people making peace. Think about a bunch of people not in debt. We haven't even got to that. I mean, there's, there's a lot more we'll get to. I mean, that's just like that, that in and of itself there. We could take the rest of our lives and just live that out. And a little slice of heaven would be here in the 803. You know, it'd be amazing. You guys see, like, see this. Sometimes we, like, it's like, okay, I'm, like, singing to Jesus. I'm doing all this stuff, all this revelation. Da, da, da. It's like, do you know that there's, like, actual realities that break through into actual life as a result of him actually being Lord? <laughs> you know, it's not all just your spiritual ideas and revelation. Those are important and primary. But it is, it gets into me. He gets into me. And whether I know it or not, whether I know how it's getting out of me or not, I'm just like, yes, Lord, come on, please. And so he's given me a new nature. And I want to talk about that briefly. Briefly. Before I do, I just, I kind of want to note Matthew 5, 48, when he gets to the end of, he talks about, he just takes some commandments. So he talks about murder, like we just talked about, and he talks about adultery, and he talks about divorce or marriage, and then he talks about uh, basically uh, swearing, and then he talks about loving people. And then he says at the end, and he like, re- like rewrites or expands those commandments. In each of those sections, he says, you says it's, you've heard it said of old, and then he adds to it. He goes deeper into it. And at the end, he says in verse 48, 548, he says, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I mean, and perfect. Perfect means perfect. It means complete, lacking no good thing. And so again, I just like, I want you to sit and think about being on a hillside. Jesus is like, I mean, really going in on a couple of things. And then he's like, therefore, you be perfect, just like your father in heaven is perfect. And it's like, I thought righteousness exceeding the Pharisees was too overwhelming. Now you're telling me to be as perfect as a father. How is this going to happen? Go to Ezekiel 11. It's a problem, right? <laughs> you know, Ezekiel 11 is to your left. what we it's what we call the old testament ezekiel 11 verse 19 
Come on, remember earlier I was talking about how the nation of Israel gets taken captive because the kings were just horrible and they ended up living like all of the other nations. They get taken captive because they end up serving those nations. They become vulnerable to those nations. It's a picture of being taken captive to sin. And while they're taken captive by those nations, Babylonia and Assyria, specifically Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos, all these prophets are talking about like, here's what's going on. Here's what's really going on. Here's the spiritual realities and here's what's going to happen. And these messages were so unpopular that almost all of them got killed. Isaiah was sawed in half. Ezekiel was put into prison until he starved to death, is what most historians believe. I mean, why? They were, pro- they were like proclaiming some ridiculous things like this. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. He says, Thus says the Lord, then I will give them one heart. He's talking about the future people of God. He says, I'm going to give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them. And take the stony heart out of their flesh and give to them a heart, a new heart of flesh, a heart that's responsive to God. All right, go to Ezekiel 18. Just think about somebody coming up. As you go to Ezekiel 18, verse 30, just think about Ezekiel coming up to a bunch of Israelite people. And he says, okay, this this is what the Lord says. Listen, everybody, listen, I'm going to give you a new spirit and a new heart. You, because you've been inundated in Christian culture, are like, yeah, I know that language, but I want you to understand that he was prophesying a real reality that people were like, new heart? You remember Nicodemus is like, how can somebody be born again? What am I going to do, get back in my mom? Like sometimes we just got to bring this stuff down. This wasn't all just like cool ideas that they knew how, like Christianese language. It was like, there's a prophet that's saying that God says we're going to have a new heart. Huh? No, no, no. We keep the law and that's it. He keeps going. Ezekiel 18, verse 30 through 32. Therefore, I will judge, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says Yahweh. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Gosh, what a loving father. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Huh. For why should you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says Yahweh. Therefore, turn and live. Such a beautiful invitation. Go to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31. Come on. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh. Again, think about Jeremiah just coming up into the scene in the nation of Israel, into the people of Israel. He's like, behold, the day... The days are coming, says Yahweh. No, we're in captivity now, but the Lord says that the days are coming when he's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That was my covenant that they broke. And though I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. I'm going to put my law in their minds. Let's read that again slowly. I will put my Torah in their minds. Doesn't sound like it's going anywhere, but inside of me. 
and I will write it on their hearts. I'm going to be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. What does he write on our mind and our hearts? It's the law. What is the law? It is Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. He writes it on our heart. Like, oh, come on, no. Like, you know, Ten Commandments, that's how I used to, you know, that's abolished. It's like, no, the law for salvation put aside. I'm not saved by the law. But because I'm saved, I live under the beauty and the blessing of the law. Things like honor your father and mother. Things like you shall not murder. It's written now on my heart. And so there's this conviction when that happens. When anger arises in my heart, there's a conviction that happens because the law is written on my heart. When I was born again, the law was written on my heart. If you were born again, you were given a new nature, a new spirit. And now when you live in these things that violate the law, anger, adultery, fornication, those things that we read in Matthew or Mark 7, When we live in those or operate in those, there's this thing called conviction that rises up because the law is written on our hearts. And so I just want to clarify for us that there is so many times a misunderstanding. And if this goes over your head, that's okay. But for a lot of you, there's a misunderstanding in what it means for the law to be put aside or for the law to be a tutor that brings us to Christ. That doesn't mean that the law is abolished in terms of being irrelevant. It means that it could never accomplish salvation It's not how you're saved, just keeping the law. You are saved by the finished work of Jesus and only the finished work of Jesus. And when you confess that as a reality in your life, he wrote the law on your heart like we just read. I'm not not making it up. We just read it. It says that there's a new covenant and he's going to write the law on our minds and heart. That means instead of expecting you to do it without a new heart, he's going to write it on your heart so that you can do it without thinking. This is being led by the Holy Spirit. This is what we mean by being led by the Holy Spirit. Is he now lives his life through us. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of Jesus that now lives his life through us. And you don't want to know what Jesus never does? Murder somebody in his heart. And so now whenever I'm living in anger in my heart, there's conviction there. Because one thing's not like the other. And I repent by God's mercy. But I also now have the ability... The ability, listen, I have the ability to live like Jesus. It's important that we get this, that we don't go swinging too far. It's like, well, you know, now that I got that new nature, I can just repent whenever I live in that sin. It's like, no, 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 that's not what the the, the Bible's preaching. It's preaching that I now have been given a righteousness to use to make this earth like heaven. And so now I not only have a new heart, but a heart that is able to obey God. My new nature gives me the desire and ability to be the image of God on earth. My old nature lacked the desire or the will. My old nature also lacked the ability. It was enslaved to sin. And so anger, for instance, again, there's many more. Anger just kept me in bondage. Now I've been liberated from that to the image of Jesus. And now I serve him and he lives his life through me. Um, Why is anger so grievous to the Father's heart? 
couple reasons. It renews my mind in the lie that other human beings are not the image of God. Number one. Uh, it hardens my heart to my own shortcomings. Anger also renews my mind in the lie that I'm in control. <laughs> Probably the most grievous thing about anger to the Lord is that uh, I become enslaved to something other than the Lordship of the Holy Spirit. And so no longer does the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and, uh, of the Holy Spirit control me and lead me and the image of Jesus control me and lead me, but anger, because I submit myself to it, leads me and controls me. You see how simple this is? It's either, this is Romans 6. You're like, I got this. That means I had to do things? Yep. Present yourself to the Lord as one free from sin. Don't submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. Don't submit yourself again to unrighteousness. Things like anger. We now have the, uh, the good news is that we have been made new and we confess Jesus as Lord. It's like, yeah, you're repeating yourself. Yes. When I was made new, I was now given a new heart and a new nature to now live like Jesus on earth and live these things out. I want you to go to Romans 10 with me. Another uh, passage as you're going to Romans 10 that uh, in terms of what the law being written on our mind and our heart is, is Deuteronomy 6. You know, again, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. That's now written on our heart. That's the summary of the commands, is love God, love people. They're divided in that way, by the way. First portion's love God. Second one's love people. That's now written on your heart. When I receive that by faith, start to live in it. But let's read Romans 10, verse 3 through 4. <clears throat> For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. What does that mean? It means that the law is no longer the way we are righteous. Tracking? Like keeping the law in our own strength is no longer how we're righteous. For Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. When we were baptized in water, we received his righteousness. Behold, the new has come. This is 2 Corinthians 5. The new has come. The old has passed away. You and I are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so his life enters me and lives its way through me. Um, I want to take a moment and I just want to, uh, to send us out. I want Josh to just lead us through communion. Um, and in a very like simple, uh, straightforward way. And before he does, I just, I, I want to, I really want to anchor us into this reality that our righteousness, again, according to Jesus, is to exceed that of the Pharisees. And what that means is that we are no longer tasked with trying to attain it by the works of the flesh, but we receive it from him. And then it lives itself out to the degree where anger doesn't even make its place in our life anymore. It loses its place. And that is good news. It'd be an odd thing to want to defend sin in your life. You know? 
Like, I've caught myself doing that before where I'm like, well, you know, it's just like kind of this is the way it is. And the Lord's like, yeah. So the whole point of me coming was so that you would be free of that. Yeah. Not so that we would live this kind of halfway in, halfway out life and just be like, settle for that. Yeah. It's like, I can actually do something about this. It reminds me of when Paul is talking about like, oh, wretched man who will deliver me from this body of sin. And a lot of people stop there and use that as some kind of like excuse to just like, ah, it's kind of, you know, just live in sin. Try your best. Sometimes you do it. Sometimes you don't. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, if you keep reading, he says, but praise be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered me. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? When you don't stop reading, you know, you just keep reading. Just keep going. Don't don't take a scene. It's like taking the scene of a movie and being like, well, that was a weird movie. It's like, well, you watch one scene. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> some of you guys are like playing scenes in your mind of movies where if you just watch the one scene, it'd be like, what is going on here? You know, like imagine taking one scene of the Lord of the Rings and somebody staring at a ring and you're like, weird, right? But it makes sense in the greater picture of things. Okay, so when we're talking about this righteousness, I just, I, this is like a mouthful and there could be, I mean, we could spend a lot of time teaching on it, but I, I want to try as best we can to make it so simple that righteousness is not about my emotions and my feelings. It's about whether or not through the confession that Jesus is Lord, I have submitted to his sacrifice, his perfect sinless life in spite, in spite of and over my certainly not sinless life. And as a result of that, I have received a new nature. I was made new just like him. And just as he is, I am in this world. And so I don't get to say that and claim that as an emotion. That is a living, active reality that is ever convicting and so beautiful because I want him and I want people to know him and I want heaven on earth because his desires have become mine. And so heaven on earth happens and things like, huh, pretty angry with that person. I'm going to go call him and say, I forgive you. This is the, this is like Jesus is like painting the picture of here's what heaven on earth looks like. How many of you guys have been in worship and you're like hearing these songs? You're like, heaven come to earth. Like what's supposed to happen? Is this room supposed to like disintegrate and wind blows in here and all this kind of, it's like, oh, maybe, but actually probably not. Actually what's going to happen is we all get filled with the spirit of Jesus and we stop being angry at people that we're supposed to forgive. Like, well, that doesn't sound as emotional as I'd like it to be. It's like, well, Good thing we didn't come up with what the kingdom of heaven on earth looks like. You know what I'm saying? Can I say something? Yeah. Um, it just is. Yeah. I was reading the Lord's Prayer a couple months ago, and I think about this often, but the prayer is that um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. And I always would like picture him raising his hands like on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. He like says that the kingdom of heaven is within you. Yeah. So I started praying like on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. And it's like super convicting. Yeah. Asking for God to make around me what's in here, and Come sometimes on. that's like not what I should be praying. Yeah. But it like raises it. Does, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And this is yeah, absolutely. And this is the exciting reality of the kingdom of heaven is it's present now. So He comes and lives within us. So again, raise your hand if you've been baptized. Okay. Come on, that's awesome. So that means that Christ now, like, just picture this. I know this is the last part. Like Christ is right here. Right here. Like he's in the, when we say he's in the room, we're not saying he's humans. We're saying, like, like, in truth, he's here. Christ is living, like, right here. And so then we have a bunch of mini Christs here living just like him. And praise God, we have his instructions, his teachings, his spirit to help us learn how to do that and walk in that. But we're, like, that is how he is. Instead of him coming, he's so amazing. Instead of him coming, 
and then being present on the earth from the time he lived until now, he was like, okay, here's how this new covenant, again, is going to work. I'm going to come, save everybody, forgive everybody of their iniquities because they're enslaved to sin, and then I'm going to write the law in their minds. I'm going to literally leave and send my spirit so that I won't just live in one physical location. I'll live inside of everyone. And so that the kingdom of heaven makes its way out of us, and we start living like him because we've received him. You know, when we hear like, well, we just talk about my anger. Like, just take that one little teaching. You're angry. Put your gift down. Go do something. And we're like, man, that sounds great. Can't do it in my own strength. And again, that is the point. It's like, I don't know if I'm going to do that perfectly. I think I can do that. But I don't know if we, the point is that we receive him and, always, and continue to receive him. Times like this, where we receive him, Sure, it's like encouraging at times, but you want to know what's happening when we receive him is we refresh our heart in the reality that now he lives within us. And then that fuels the moment in the future when you live in obedience to his teachings. When there's an opportunity for anger to arise, and instead you live in forgiveness. Does that make sense? But a lot of us try to live still in the law in our own strength. You're like the Pharisees trying to establish your own righteousness, and instead, you just need to continue to submit to his righteousness. Submit to it. Yield to it. Receive it. Get under it. All different ways of saying submit. That's what we're doing when we walk through what Joshua's about to walk We're submitting again to the fact that he's perfect. We are not. Come live your life through us, Lord Jesus, please. We want you. We need you. You're the image of God. We were meant to be pretty amazing. Um, let's just pray for a moment, and then I'll have to do this, do this thing. I just want to I just want to pray over to you specifically. Father, thank you for your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come and refresh our hearts? Would you make alive in our hearts all the seeds of your word that we received this morning? Just come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Teach us. We welcome you. You know, if you if you want and welcome the Lordship of the Holy Spirit in your life, He's the teacher, the advocate, the counselor. You just continue to ask Him to come to help you. It's like a relationship, you know. Like, come and help me, please. Come and give to me everything that is Christ. You know what He wants to do right now? What the Spirit wants to do is He wants to remind you that He's given you everything that was Christ. That $2 million, you know, I was talking about earlier, that got imputed or transferred to Sophie's account. The Holy Spirit reminding us of our righteousness would be like, be like me calling Sophie and be like, hey, you remember? You remember I put that in your bank account, right? No words needed on Sophie's end. She just needs to remember that she was given freely righteousness. And it's just so amazing that we get the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he would teach, he would counsel, he would remind us that, hey, do you remember what Jesus did for you? He laid down his life so that you could have his perfect, spotless record. And that you would not only have his record, but you would have his way, his being, the way that he operated, the, the, the mind that he had. That's what the Holy Spirit comes and reminds us, that you have the mind of Christ. You start believing that, that's, that's, you start believing that and you'll live like it. And again, we are certainly after living like that.
Come on, just let the Holy Spirit remind you. And Josh is going to, whenever he wants, come and lead us through a little bit of communion.